Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Great to see you. I have a double honor this evening. The first honor is to be with you. The second honor is to be beginning a new series with you, which I think is a first for me here at LIM. And the series is called What Three Words? What Three Words? And the idea or the concept behind that name is derived from an organization that has mapped every three square meters on this planet and been able to identify it through three words. So if you were to give the emergency services a three-worded code, they could find out wherever you were on the planet. And I can't remember who on the team it was put this forward as a, as a great idea for a, uh, a series title. I'm thinking maybe it was Nick. We'll give him the credit since he's here. And um, he said, well, how about we kind of take that location narrative and we apply it to the spiritual life? How can we locate ourselves spiritually speaking? And my part in this, in part one, I want to give you a message entitled, Where Are You? And uh, you would think it was quite neatly related to that um, sort of location story and idea, but it comes to us from the book of Genesis. So if you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read the first 21 verses to you in a moment. The three words, where are you, they will appear in these verses, actually in verse 9. God asking Adam a question, where are you? Adam had gone missing. Adam had disappeared at a moment of tension in the story of humanity when there had been some problems brewing and some mistakes had been made. Adam had done a runner and God wanted to find him and have a chat and a conversation with him. And with that, I want to present you with a challenge and a question that I hope you will answer, hopefully better after I've given you the message, but certainly by the end of it. And that question, that challenge is, how do you deal with uncomfortable moments? How do you deal with difficult moments? Are you like an Adam who hides in the bushes from God when the going gets tough? Or have you some other way of managing your sense of personal discomfort when you're in a moment that you would rather avoid? Now, many of us have got our kind of ways of getting through a difficult time, and we'll see Adam and Eve's here in a moment. The challenge is, is that for us, in the experience of the moment, we often choose a way to get through that that helps us to feel more comfortable in a difficult moment. We tend not to choose things that make the thing more difficult for us, certainly in our immediate sense. But often the way that we choose to get through that moment creates a problem bigger than if we'd just gone through the moment in its kind of raw, gritty, organic state. Let me give you a hypothetical situation in a kind of a pastoral setting that someone might come across. Imagine a couple, and they're both in their mid-50s. And for the husband, he's suddenly or fairly recently become aware of his own sort of health condition. 
driven by the fact that a couple of years earlier that he had lost his brother. His brother had passed away. And he was processing this and slightly concerned that maybe some of the biological reasons for his brother's sickness may be present in him. But being a kind of typical guy who doesn't want to talk about his stuff, he buries that discomfort and rather takes it out on his wife through a system of well-worked sarcasm in certain moments in the week. And what happens was, in this hypothetical situation, his wife had made friends with an old friend of hers through Facebook, and she was going out, and they were spending time together, and the husband was making sarcastic remarks about how much money she was spending going out with her friends. And she's thinking to herself, well, he obviously doesn't have a problem with money per se because he's happy spending it himself. So I don't know why he's got a problem with me going out. And finding that her husband was now a bit of a grouch, she decides to spend even more time with her friend. And that eventual separation just makes the guy feel even more lonely and fed up with his life, which further fuels his determination just to take out his angst on his wife through more sarcasm. And then what would happen in that kind of situation is there comes a wedge between the couple. A wall is built. A sense of disconnect begins to happen where, although maybe not openly and overtly immediately, there becomes a situation where there is a drift between the couple. And the situation wasn't money. The situation wasn't friendship. The situation was one guy looking at his own life, not sure how to process his own mortality. And the discomfort of that moment drove him to take it out in a way that he felt better about himself, but he created a problem bigger than the thing that began it. And so many times in life, we go through moments and we make choices which actually cause us greater problems. And if we look here as we're going to at the story of Adam and Eve, I think the Bible gives us some really fascinating insights into the root causes of why we make those bad choices in those difficult moments. Because there is something in the human condition, there is something that makes us tick that if it's not watched for and looked out for, can drive us to make choices that in the moment we think are logical and reasonable, but will only set ourselves up and those around us for more pain. So let's read this through from verse 1 through to verse 21, and we'll unpack what I believe the narrative is revealing to us. It says this, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said, no, you'll certainly not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig uh, leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. 
So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And the man said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. Then God asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and so I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you were cursed more than any of the livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And they said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort and your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you have listened to your wife and eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from. The ground is therefore now cursed because of you. You will eat, it from, uh, eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat the bread by the sweat of your brow, and you will return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you were dust, and you will return to dust." The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made clothing from the skins, from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So in this story, I believe it gives us some insights into why we make certain bad decisions in difficult moments. And I think the first thing we can observe from this text is the problem began when Eve and Adam relied on their own logic and reasoning skills and trusted in their own senses over the Word of God. Now, this part of the narrative, this part in Genesis, has got two parts to it. There's the bit before the sin, before eating the forbidden fruit, and the bit afterwards. And even before Adam and Eve had eaten from the fruit, they found out that their logic and reasoning skills were vulnerable to make mistakes. And so what I believe we can learn from that is if you want to go through life and you want to make sure that you are managing your world and managing moments the best that you can possibly manage them, then you have to not lean solely and completely on your own senses and reasoning skills because they are vulnerable to make mistakes. And the trouble is, at the time when we're reasoning through a situation, it seems reasonable to us to make the conclusions that we make. For Eve, she would have looked at the fruit, as it says she did, and thought, well, my senses tell me this looks perfectly fine. But God's told me not to eat from it. So rather than trust God's instruction for this moment, I'm going to go about it my way. And when we go through life determined to do things our way rather than God's way, then we set ourselves up for problems. And hiding in our logic and reasoning can be things which can present to us a case for their legitimacy, a case to say to us, this is the right way to go, but actually it can be serving the purposes of sin that will ultimately bring you down. There's this interesting part of Jesus' story with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus reveals to his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem to die. 
Peter, seeming, uh, seemingly some of, somewhat of a leader amongst the other disciples, goes to Jesus and says to him, Jesus, this shouldn't happen to you. Maybe we shouldn't go to Jerusalem. It seemed logical and reasonable to him to take another path. And Jesus, recognizing that there was something flawed in Peter's reasoning, he points out actually what was at the base of that reasoning. He says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God, you have in mind the things of men. And that's really, really interesting because what that shows us is that sometimes when we're thinking about ourselves and serving our agenda and getting what we want to happen in a moment, we align ourselves with the way that the devil goes about his business. And for Peter in that moment, it would have seemed very logical and very reasonable to tell Jesus to go the way of self-preservation. I believe probably because Peter was worried for his own preservation. Because if Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem and die, what do you think was going to happen to his disciples? But rather than just say to Jesus, uh, by the way, do we really need to go to Jerusalem? I'm scared. He said, hey, maybe you ought to protect yourselves and let none of us go. And so his reasoning was flawed. It seemed logical to many, but it was flawed to God because sometimes God's ways are not the same way as our ways. Not everything we think is uh, uh, logical is wrong. For example, if I was to tell Nick not to put his hand in the fire, that's not because it's wrong. It's just good sense. But there are moments when there can be something in our reasoning capacity that is going to drive us to make a wrong choice. So we have to rely on something more than our own senses and reasoning skills. The second thing I believe we can learn from this passage is that as humans, we're all going to develop an individual way of coping with our problems. When we read through the rest of the narrative, and I'm going to give you three things that Adam and Eve do, they each choose to cover up their mistakes. They each choose to hide from God, and they each choose to blame one another for the problem. They're equally culpable in all three of those areas. But my understanding of human nature is that often through time, we tend to default to one particular way of coping with difficulty. You will have a style personal to you that you've learned to rely on to get you through tough moments. And it may feel like that's the way to give you safety, but you will find that it ends up bringing those around you more problems. But we try and find a way through. And I believe that if we could find a way of seeing the rest of Adam and Eve's life play out, we don't get much more detail about them other than they have some kids, and it doesn't really go well for them. But if we were to try and watch more points of connection between this couple, you would start to see that Adam and Eve started to go through difficult moments in a way and a style that was personal to them. Some people, they try and bury their head in the sand and pretend nothing's going on. For others, they get all confrontational and they try to control the narrative and they get very boisterous and bullyish. 
For other people, they back out of the situation and they try and get out of there because they feel so uncomfortable in that moment. But when we start to find one thing that seems to work best for us, it becomes our style. It becomes the way that we think that we need to be in order to get through life. Imagine a young lady in a big city, and she's in a difficult part of town. And she's going along a particular street on a particular day, and lo and behold, she gets mugged. She loses her purse, she loses her watch, and she loses some of her dignity. And from that point on, she chooses, when she's in that side of town, to not go up that street. She chooses another path through. Now, even if you were to put cameras on that street, and you were to stick police men or women on that street, there would be forever something in her mind that said, when you're in that area, don't go that way. And imagine that's not a city, but it's your life. We have certain moments when we face difficulty at a point where we find ourselves instinctively thereafter saying, I mustn't go that way again. Because it will drag up something in me I just want to avoid. I don't ever want to feel that. I don't ever want to think that again. So I will do whatever I need to do to go another way. We pick a style, we pick a route, we pick a a way of getting about our life that causes us to avoid those places that we've recognized and earmarked as difficult points. And we can end up taking the long route round. And even if you should be assured by the fact that there were police persons and cameras on the street, you would be fighting against your nature that experienced the trauma in that moment. You'd be fighting against that to go back that way again. And so we have to recognize that we have a way and a style about us. And an unrecognized style is one that will continue to cause you problems. So what's the antidote to do that, to deal with that? The first thing is that you need to pray about it. Psalm 139, Lord, search my heart. See what's going on in me. Lead me down a better path. That's my paraphrase. Or if you're really, really brave... Talk to some people around you that you love. Because I can assure you, even if you don't know what your style is, they do. My wife knows my style, watching stuff on YouTube until I can completely zone out. So we have to face up to the fact that we have a style, we have a crutch, we have a way of dealing with things, and we have to learn to recognize that and to confront it. And the three things here that Adam and Eve do are these. The first thing it says is that they try to cover up their mistakes. They recognize there was a problem. They recognize they did something wrong. And they tried by their own strength to make it right before somebody found out. They sewed fig leaves together. But I guess it can't have gone too, too well because when God says, where are you? Adam says, I was hiding because I was naked. So I guess maybe that fig leaf didn't fit quite as well as it hoped. But we try and manufacture a solution. I remember when I was about nine or ten years of age, my parents took me to a farmhouse somewhere as part of a family holiday, and I was made up to get my own room in this farmhouse. But on the windowsill was this vase. But I was determined that I wanted to get on the windowsill and look out the window. I'm a 10-year-old boy. Of course I want to look out the window. And lo and behold, it didn't take more than maybe a couple of hours, I knocked the vase 
off the windowsill and poosh, smashed on the floor. My first instinct wasn't, Mummy, Daddy, I've made a mistake. My first instinct was, how can I repair this vase? I have no qualifications in pottery. I'm not a person who's good at crafts. I can't even draw a stick man. You wouldn't trust me to fix a vase. And what happened was is that we went to the local shops a little bit later and I asked my parents for some money. They asked me, why do you want the money? And I said, I want some sweets. They said, why don't we just go and buy you some sweets? I said, I don't want you to buy me some sweets. I just want the money. So we had this little bit of a tug of war in the conversation. What do you want? I want the money. Well, let's just buy you the sweets. No, I want the money. I'll buy it myself. And what I actually wanted to buy was super glue. I don't know why I thought that me as a 10-year-old boy with a tube of superglue, I could fix this situation. But in my head, my logic, my reasoning skills told me that you're better off having a wonky vase with superglue on it than facing up to your parents and admitting your mistake. And so many of us, we'd try and rather cover up our mistakes and present one another with wonky vases than actually own up to the fact that we did something wrong. And we go through life handing people wonky vases right, left, and center. Have that. It's really nice. They're looking at it thinking, well, actually, I'd rather have one that was all in one piece. Thank you very much. And in our own delusions and our way of dealing things, we think we can cover it up. Because if we don't, we have to otherwise have to carry the embarrassment and the shame. I remember a conversation some years ago with a guy that was heavily tattooed. Tattooed from top to bottom. There was barely an inch on his skin without a tattoo. So I called him on it. I said, hey, mate, why all the tattoos? He said, because I had a lot of scars. And I think that's the thing we often try. How can I disguise the fact that I carry scars? What can I do to try and fix this problem myself? The trouble is when we try to fix it, we are putting ourselves in a position where where it's based on our ability to fix it rather than God's ability to fix it. In order for Adam and Eve to find God's solution, God's covering, his better answer to their fig leaves, they had to surrender to him about the way that they had gone about it. So we have to acknowledge and understand that there is going to be an instinct at you in moments of difficulty, in moments of discomfort, when you're going to want to cover up, but you are only going to entrench the problem, not find the solution. Now, the second thing I believe that Adam and Eve do here that's a problem is they then go and hide. Fig fig leaves aren't enough, so let's find a bush and let's go and... Hope that God, who sees all and knows all, won't be able to find us hiding amongst the foliage. And sometimes there is an instinct with us to try and escape and get away from the problem. Run and hide. Is there anyone in here from witness? Seems a strange question just to throw that halfway through a sermon, but it has a point. No? Anyone even been to witness? Put your hand up. Good, good on you. See, it's not a shame. There's no shame attached to that. But there was this pub in Widnes called The Doctors. And I could just imagine that there would be many couples going through some relational conflict. And suddenly the guy gets sick and says he needs to go to The Doctors. It would be his escape. I need my medicine. Where are you going? I'm not lying. I'm going to The Doctors. That exit route away from the situation... 
how can I get out? How can I get from out, outside of the spotlight that is on me and on this moment that I'm uncomfortable in right now? But you don't always have to be physically absent to be emotionally absent. Sometimes you have gone in your head and in your heart and your body is right there in the moment. I have this problem at home when there are certain sporting events on the TV. Nikki, my, my wife, will come in to me and said, Tobias, your three-year-old son, who you claim to love, has asked you 400 times for an ice pop. And not once have you answered him. And the thing is, I've never heard him because I'm focused on the TV. I'm physically present, but I'm mentally absent. And we can go absent in our phones. We can go absent in social media. We can go absent with extra work. We can go absent with our hobbies. We can go absent in so many ways. We just choose something that helps us justify not being where it hurts and letting our minds and our hearts go somewhere else to avoid it. And so Adam and Eve, they're choosing to rather be in a bush or behind a tree than actually face up to God recognizing probably instinctively that their fig trees were insufficient for the problem that they caused. They had to run and hide as well. And so as Christians, I believe we have to learn the power of honesty and as, as well as vulnerability. The final thing I believe we can get from this narrative is the coping strategy of blame blame. So this kind of has the largest portion of this text given to it. This dialogue of blame, God says to the man, the man says it's the woman's fault, the woman says it's the serpent's fault, the serpent hasn't got a leg to stand on. (laughs) Sorry, I knew I was going to get that in somewhere. So they go through this cycle of argumentation, pointing fingers, why do people blame somebody else for something they, some, to some degree, feel culpable for? Because it's easier to park the responsibility with somebody else than take the blame and shame ourselves. Anger is a more palatable emotion than sadness or guilt or fear or shame. We'd rather let somebody else carry the can than carry it ourselves. I remember and, uh, maybe about four or five years ago, I was in Blackpool, and there were these two boys, probably about 12 or 13, and they'd won, I guess they'd won anyway, this silly hat. And it was like one of these giant foam hats. I remember looking at them thinking, that's a, that's a silly hat. But to them, they actually quite liked the hat, and they were fighting over who got the hat. But then they got to a certain part of the street where there's some other young people And they started to discern that those other young people weren't so keen on the hat that they were wearing. And so rather than fighting over who was going to wear the hat, suddenly they were quite happy to try and pass that hat to somebody else, to their brother, to their dad, their mom. Just don't let me wear that hat. And sometimes in a moment where we feel uncomfortable, we try and make other people wear our hats. Say, yeah, you wear this. Let the focus be on you. Take the focus off me. And sometimes when we're in an uncomfortable moment and we're feeling the pinch of what is going on, it's easy to lash out at somebody else and construct an idea in our head of why they are to blame. 
And unless you recognize and acknowledge that, you will hold other people to account for your mistakes way more than you realize. There is a bias within us, certainly once we've had one or two moments with someone that's felt uncomfortable and our brain tells us, oh, they must be partly to blame for this. Then we find other reasons to blame them for something else and other reasons to blame them for something else and other reasons. And it escalates and suddenly we dislike somebody who had no part to play in the, in the problems that we were facing, but it was easier just to park it all at their door than to process it ourselves. And unless you recognize the part your own mind and your own instinct plays in wanting to pass the buck to somebody else, you will make others die on the crosses that were caused by your sins. But the beautiful thing of the gospel is that ultimately, once we come out of our hiding and we stop the blame game and we stop trying to construct our fabricated efforts at atoning for the problem, we suddenly position ourselves for God to bring the right solution. And in verse 21, the last verse that we read there, God placed animal skins on Adam and Eve. Animal skins would require animal death. There was a sacrifice. It's this early glimpse of the gospel in this passage here. Right at the beginning, when God, through this narrative, through this story, shows us the point at which humanity fell and the problems that start to occur as a result of that fall, he then shows the way back is through a sacrifice providing a covering for the human pair. And God can provide something for you and for me when we make mistakes. The things that we want to blame others for or hide from or cover up, if we were to just come into the light and deal with the thing head on, God can suddenly then say, well, I waited for this moment because now I can get us out of this mess. And as long as we're holding on to our faulty reasoning and faulty logic, we are living outside of God's provision for a solution. God has the sacrifice prepared. He has the way out ready. But we have to surrender the ways that we want to go about those uncomfortable moments so that God can be released to help his people. So I finish with that question that I posed at the beginning. How do you deal with uncomfortable moments? Are you a coverer-upper? Are you a hider or are you a blamer? Do you escape? Bury your head in the sand. Slug it out. Fight it out. Control the narrative. Have an argument. Go down the doctors. Drink it away. Eat it away. Or just pretend it ain't there at all. My purpose here this evening is not to judge you or to point the finger. It's simply this. Once you recognize what it is you do, Bring it to the light of God and say to him, not in an altar call, you don't have to go and consult your pastor, Nick and myself and others, we don't need a list of emails this week saying, I just want to confess to you. If you want to, that's fine. 
But just take it to God and say, I am sorry that I always seem to handle my messes this way. I'm sorry that I choose to deal with things in a way that doesn't serve the agenda of God. It serves my self-preservation. And I can assure you, if you do that, God will help you to have the best relationships you've ever had. Because there will be a freedom, a liberty, and a connection there that would otherwise be missing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how it's so instructive and enlightening and helpful just to figure ourselves out a little bit better so that we can live more honorable, more successful lives. And I pray through what's been shared this evening that, Heavenly Father, that wherever something has resonated with us, that, that we say to it, hey, yeah, that's, that's me. That without condemnation, without shame, you'll just help us to bring that to you and to seek your support and your freedom. Whether that was begun in us through trauma or just convenience, I just pray you will help us to live a way free of faulty logic where we walk in grace, we walk in truth, and we walk in the light for the glory of God. Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com